0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Okay, my friends, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, which is where we left off, Matthew chapter 24. This should be our third and final week in Matthew chapter 24. As we've been making our way through, we've been discussing The end of the age, Jesus had told uh, his disciples, they had commented on the magnificence of the temple building. And he said, you see that building? Not one stone will be left upon another. And they they were amazed by that. How could a building with such grandeur, how could that uh, come crashing down like that? Clearly, that must mean it's the end of the world. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about the end of the world when he discussed the temple. He was talking, I believe, about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., By the Romans, but in their minds, the only thing that could bring a building like that down would be the end of the world. And so they begin asking him, What will be the signs of the end of the age? What will be the signs of your coming? And so Jesus began to speak to them. Matthew 24, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And as he began to speak with them, we have what is called the Olivet Discourse. Just about a three, four minute walk from The temple area is the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus and his disciples went to the Mount of Olives and he began to answer the question, what will be the sign of my coming? You want to know the sign of my coming? Well, spiritual deception will be a sign of the end of the age, will be a sign of my coming. There will be a rise of false, ant, or false Christ, I should say, there'll be a rise of false Christ, there'll be a rise of false prophets that will lead people astray, he told them in verse five of the chapter. He says, what will be a sign of my coming? Geopolitical instability. There will be wars, there'll be rumors of wars. Kingdom will rise up against kingdom. Nation will rise up against nation. You'll hear about it and you'll see it. He told them that in verses 6 and 7. He told them there'd be great earthquakes, that there would be pestilences, that there would be famines, there would be these series of humanitarian crises that develop all around the earth. They, these will be signs of the end of the age. But notice what he said in verse 8 he said, But these things are just the beginning of the end of the age you know you're going to be going through these things one after the other and think this is it next thing is it And so, no these are just the beginning of the birth pains it's going to continue on and jesus said in the days immediately leading up to his return we would enter into we being the world that is the world would enter into a period of lawlessness he refers to them as days of lawlessness And I defined that last week essentially as sort of an every man for himself mentality, that the love of man would grow cold. It says in verse 10 of chapter 24 that many would fall away and begin to betray one another and hate one another. It says in verse 12, because the lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Just sort of that natural affection for your fellow man. All of that will fade away because it will be again a days of uh, every man for himself. Now, in verse 21, we read, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never more will be. And it's from that that we get that phrase, the great tribulation, second half of uh, that seven-year period of time. But he says, that those days will, there, will never, there never have been days like those days are going to be. Intense persecution, martyrdom, we looked at last week. And also last week, and this is all the review, um, also last week we looked at this abomination which causes desolation. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, may the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that abomination of desolation marking the starting point of the Great Tribulation, the latter half of the seven-year period of time in which the Antichrist, who had initiated a seven-year peace agreement with Israel, perhaps with the entire world, certainly we know with Israel, in that abomination of desolation, the Antichrist will go into the temple, set himself up, himself up, to be worshiped there as God, and coming out of there will turn his attention, his hatred toward the Jewish people, And as it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, let no one deceive in any way. That day will not come, the end of the world, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The start of the great tribulation. Well, that brings us to where we had left off. So picking up in verse 29, let me read a few verses. It says, now immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one hand, one end of the heaven to the other so again tribulation verse 29 speaks of seven year period of time it's initiated by the signing of this world peace agreement that the antichrist signs with israel and with others we see that in verse 29 immediately after the tribulation so at the very end of that seven year period of time as it comes to a close. Jesus says there in verse 29 that the sun will be darkened and that the moon will not give its life. He says also in verse 29, the second half of the verse, that the stars will fall from heaven and that the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, we read about those signs in greater detail in the book of Revelation. And so I know you've been all reading it because we asked you to do so. So let me draw your attention to some of the things that John wrote. Because again, the book of Revelations chapter 6 through chapter 19 go into greater depth, what's that, 14 chapters of what Jesus talks about in one chapter, and in some cases, just one verse. So if you want to read a little deeper into it, read the book of Revelation. But starting in Revelation 8, verse 10, commenting on, or in greater detail, giving us information about what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, we read this. Now, the third angel "'Blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, "'blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers "'and on the springs of water. "'The name of the star is Wormwood. "'A third of the waters became Wormwood, "'and many people died from the water "'because it hadn't been made bitter. "'The fourth angel blew his trumpet, "'and a third of the thir- sun was struck, "'and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, "'so that a third of their light might be darkened, "'and a third of the day might be kept from shining, "'and likewise, a third of the night. So what you're seeing is there are these various signs that are gonna be taking place in the heavens. Now, if we piece what we know with other places in the scripture, it's in the midst of those signs from heaven that all the nations of the world will gather together for one great last battle. Revelation 16 says, for they are demonic spirits, talking about demonic spirits, performing signs who will go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So there'll be great spiritual warfare taking place in the last days so that these demonic spirits will go to the various kings of the world, deceive them in such a way that the kings are going to think, hey, you know what, I have an idea. Here's what I'll do. I'll go and I'll get involved in this war. Thinking it's their own idea when the reality is it's an idea that has been planted by an evil spirit and they will gather together from all the nations of the world, all the parts of the world, into what we commonly refer to as the Battle of Armageddon. And again, Revelation chapter 16, 16, we looked at it last week, it says, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, or the plains of Megiddo, which are there in Israel. And that battle will culminate, and we learned this last week, Uh, As it says in Revelation chapter 19, we looked last week. Now we look at it in verse 30 of Matthew chapter 24. That battle will culminate with the glorious return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So let's read verse 30. Way to go. I lost it. Hang in there, my friends. See this technology? Verse 30 of Matthew 24. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the battle of Armageddon ends with the return of Jesus Christ. Now there are some that suggest that Matthew chapter 24, the entire chapter, not just the first two verses, but that the entire chapter of Matthew 24 speaks of events which were fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. For those that think that, this verse is a problem because in 70 AD, this did not happen. It says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. That didn't happen in 70 AD. So I do believe verses one and two of Matthew 24 are speaking of events that occurred but I do not think all of the events have already occurred, that they are something into the future. But the Son of Man will return, end of the battle of Armageddon. He will come, he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and so we call that the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. This world as we know it will have come to an end, and the Lord himself will come and it will reign in righteousness here on the earth. Notice what it says in Matthew 24:30. It says that all the tribes of the earth will, will mourn. That when Jesus Christ returns, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, there is some discussion as to whether that is referring to all the tribes of the Jewish people on the earth or all the tribes of the people and the nations that are scattered throughout the world. There's some discussion. Let me kind of throw both of those ideas out there at you and you can draw your own conclusion. There are some that suggest that this is a reference to all the tribes of the nation of Israel that they will mourn, that they will repent, is the idea of what that mourning means there. And what they're going to repent of ultimately is their rejection of Christ as the Messiah. He had come, we as a people had rejected him, we were wrong, we repent over that, we mourn over our sin, and we accept him now to be the Messiah. Now the reason we come up with that conclusion, or some people do, is because the prophecy in the book of Zechariah says this, It says, I will pour out on the house of David, the Jewish people, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so there are some that say what's happening there in Revelation chapter 19, Matthew chapter 24, is that the children of Israel are coming now, they're recognizing he indeed is the Messiah, they're repenting over the fact that they missed it the first time, and those are the tribes that will be mourning in that place. That's a possibility. Others suggest, that would be a good mourning. Others suggest that it refers to all the tribes of the earth that have gathered together in rebellion at the Battle of Armageddon, and that the morning is a morning of regret for how wrong they were and how it's too late now to make any changes uh, to how wrong they were. Now, So I'm not exactly sure which of those two ideas is the correct one. I think there's cases, arguments that you can make for both. In some respects, I think both are correct. That all the nations of the earth, when they see Christ returning, they're going to realize how wrong they were and mourn over that fact. And we also know that the nation of Israel will mourn over the fact that they've missed their Messiah because the prophecy in Zechariah is so very clear. And so perhaps both of those ideas are correct there. Here's what we do know. Either way, the Lord Jesus will return with power and in great glory. And we know that to be true that the Lord Jesus will return with power and in great glory. Look what verse 31 says. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth, excuse me, from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24, 31. He will gather his elect from all the earth, and as the Bible speaks repeatedly of, he will bring them to Israel. Specifically, he will bring them to Jerusalem, which will be the place where he sets up his throne, Jesus that is, sets up his throne to rule and reign on the earth for 1,000 years. So again, to quote the prophet Zechariah. And again, the way prophecy works in the Bible is there are books specifically dedicated to it, like the book of Revelation, but more often than not, there's just information scattered throughout the Bible. And so your homework assignment could have been read your whole Bible which you should be doing. I hope you are working your way through. Somebody shared the other day with me said, and I've known this guy for years. He said, I made my way all the way through the Bible for the first time last week. And I said, praise the Lord. He's probably about 35 year old guy that would ever praise the Lord. So I don't know if you've read through your whole Bible, but you can do it, my friends. Just take a little each day, read through the whole word, let the Lord speak to you. Anyhow, a little public service announcement verse 2 of Zechariah it says now many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will once again choose Jerusalem and he will set up his throne there and he'll rule for a thousand years it'll bring a close To the age as we know it, Um, remember, that's their question. What will be the signs of the end of the age? It'll bring a close to the age that we know it, and it will institute the 1,000-year righteous reign of Jesus Christ. And won't that be nice? A 1,000-year righteous reign of Christ. Apparently, you don't agree. Okay? (laughs) Won't that be awesome? The Lord's going to be in charge. Not very uh, convincing, my friend. So there you go. All the information you need about the signs of the end of the age, according to what the Lord thought. Now, as Jesus was prone to do, Jesus would give information, and then he would say, All right, now, what's the point of the information? What are you going to do with that information? A lot of people like to study Bible end time stuff. They like to study eschatology. They like to make the little charts. They like to have arguments. We used to go to the pastor's conference. I don't know if you know. There'd be like eight to ten of us guys that would go, and, you know, we don't normally, like, bunk up together in rooms or whatever. So we're acting like we're in college and we're like, let's have a debate tonight or whatever. Let's debate when Jesus is going to return and and people getting out their charts and and all this kind of stuff. And it's got to be more than to just making charts that look nice and to be able to win a debate. There's got to be another reason why Jesus gives us all of this information. And so Jesus now is going to launch into that. Because the study of end times, it's interesting, it can be exciting, it can stir our hearts a little bit, you're like, wow, this is really going to happen, these things are going to happen, he's told us all this stuff, and we're seeing some of this stuff, and that can kind of cause our hearts to, to jump a little bit, but what impact does it have? What impact should it have on your life? And indeed, it should have some sort of an impact. And so Jesus now, in verse 32, he's going to address the impact that all this information should have. So let me read a few verses. It says, now, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So again, what impact should all this talk about the signs of the end of the age have on your life? Jesus says, learn the lesson of the fig tree. And then he goes on, he says, as soon as the fig tree becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near." The fig tree would follow the same routine every single year we talked about it a little bit depending on the type of fig tree it might produce just a little bit of fruit then some leaves with that and so that's the one time when jesus saw a tree with fruit a particular time of year he goes there and there's no fruit on it and it wasn't following the rules of what it's supposed to do when he cursed the fig tree and so on so it would put out a little fruit little leaves that little fruit would go away, then summer would come, the real harvest would be there, and so on. It follows that procedure every single year. So Jesus says, you see the tree with the leaves, the tender shoots, you know that summer is near. Just look at the signs. And then he, he makes the point here, in the same way that you would look at the signs of the fig tree, you could also deduce not only that summer is near, but you could look at the signs of the age and deduce that Jesus is near and that his coming is very soon. So he says in verse 33, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. Now there may also be another reason why Jesus uses particularly a fig tree for his example in verse 32. If you were with us when we did Matthew chapter 21, so it's only three chapters ago, but we did it like three months ago. But if you were with us from Matthew chapter 21, we looked at the example of the fig tree. That I was just referencing a moment ago. And if you were here, then you would remember that the fig tree is consistently used as a type of the nation of Israel in the scripture. So if you're looking at prophetic statements or if you're looking at places where there's symbolic language, the fig tree regularly, almost always represents the nation of Israel. And so if Jesus, he could just randomly be picking a tree. Or he could be by design picking the fig tree so that you would think about his disciples here would think about the nation of Israel either way what he's saying is it's going to follow there's going to be an initial budding of the leaves and then after the springtime the 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 um, fruit is going to come and you can see that now if Jesus is by design choosing the image of the fig tree to speak of the nation of Israel well then there's a different point here altogether or an additional point at the very least here. And so Jesus could be saying this, not just to look at a collection of signs and know that the return is near, he already touched on that, but to look for the specific sign of the budding of the fig tree, which is Israel, and know that his return is near. So when did Israel bud? When did the nation that had fruit and then it kind of went into that dormant stage of winter and then it bud again? Well, it was May 14th, 1948. May 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel, against all odds and against all other patterns of history, once again became a homeland for the Jewish people. May 14th, 1948. Never before, never, but listen, never before had a people that had been dispersed throughout all the earth not been assimilated into the nations of the earth and the peoples to which they had gone. Typically, historically, when a people were dis- moved from their particular land or they were forced to flee and they kind of dispersed themselves throughout the world and the diaspora took place in 70 AD where the Jewish people dispersed themselves throughout the world as well as Christian people did and the gospel went forth, praise the Lord. But as the Jewish people went out in the earth, typically what would happen, people would end up in this little area here and they would become irish people or they'd become italian people or they become french people or people from this country that they would assimilate themselves into the culture into the land that they had gone but the jewish people uniquely historically and by the way typically that took takes about two or three generations so initially you know grandma is still very italian or whatever And then the next one is, oh, yeah, my grandma. And all of a sudden you throw out Italian-type phrases or whatever when food is being discussed or something. But then you get to that third generation, and he's just an American kid or whatever it may be. Typically two or three generations. The Jewish people, 1,900 years outside of the land of Israel, and yet they maintained their unique identity. Didn't matter where they went in the world. 1,900 years And that nation, which had been truly dead, was revived back to life on May 14th, 1948. If you go to Israel, again, we're going there, and there's still room, you can come if you want, another public service announcement. Um, But we're going there in June, and one of the last places that we go on our trip to Israel, it's ironic because when foreign dignitaries come to the nation of Israel, the first place that they bring that foreign dignitary, oftentimes they'll even have them meet, Benjamin Netanyahu or whomever, they'll have them meet at Yad Vashem. Now Yad Vashem is the Holocaust Museum uh, in Jerusalem. And so, you know, we have one in Washington, DC. It's probably three, four times the size of the one that is in Washington, DC. It's quite a sight to go. They said you could take 20 hours going through there and looking at all of the things and, and the material that they have at that particular place. But they'll bring foreign dignitaries to that place as sort of a reminder to them, hey, as we're gonna be discussing and talking about what our nation and your nation is going to do, you need to remember that this is in our recent history that there's many of us sitting in the Knesset right now that either we were alive back then or our parents were alive back then or we were little kids back then. And so that's all of that's fresh in our mind. Okay, now what would you like to talk about? All right, so everyone goes there. We go there. When we go to Jerusalem, it's pretty much the last day or so of our trip. And at Yad Vashem, when you come driving in, it's a beautiful place, um, trees everywhere. The the planting of trees is like a symbol of new life and so on. And so it's just a beautiful foresty place just outside of Jerusalem. And you go driving in down this long road and you come passing under these arches. Do we have these? You come passing through under these arches. Now, you probably can't see from where you are. But on the back side of those arches in the English language, on the other side, same thing is written in Hebrew, but on the back side is this Bible verse from Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 14. And Ezekiel 37, 14 says, I will put my breath into you, and you shall live again, and I will set you upon your own soil. And so the Jewish people themselves, most Jewish people are not religious Jews. The Jew by culture, the Jew by descent. And you know, they might do a little religious stuff here and there, but most of them will tell you that there's a whole segment of the Jewish population that are atheistic Jews. It's, it seems contradictory. And yet the Jewish people themselves realize that being back in their land is a fulfillment of the prophecies of scripture. We got off of the plane the first time we went there and there was this old guy, he's probably 70, 80 years old. And he got, he's a Jewish guy dressed up like a typical kind of Jewish garb of the Orthodox and so on, he, would get off, he got off the plane, he went down onto the soil of the ground, and he kissed the ground because of the miracle that he was experiencing. I'm telling you, the nation of Israel alive today is a miracle in our lives. And being able to go there and walk on that soil and see what the Lord has done. When they took over the land, it was a third world situation. And it was revived. Many, many successful Jews, American Jews didn't want to go to Israel in 1948. But then there were others from around the world, particularly refugee type situations, whether it be Europe or whether it be Russia and so on, that flocked to get there. And it's a wonderful place to go. But again, underneath that on that uh, written up there, I'll put my breath into you, you shall live again, and I will set you upon Your own soil—it's a miracle. The rebirth of the nation of Israel is a modern-day miracle, and it's uh, it's remarkable to consider. And many have suggested that if that's what Jesus was talking about, when you see the fig tree budding, know that my coming is near. That Jesus was speaking about the budding of the nation of Israel, the rebirth of the nation of Israel—that that is a sign of the coming of the end of the age. When you see it, look up, for your redemption draws near. And that understanding, it causes many Bible teachers to conclude that the return of Christ is near. Notice what it says in in verse 34 there. It says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. So if Jesus is speaking of the reviving of the nation of Israel, Well, then what his words say is the generation that sees the rebirth of the nation of Israel will be the last generation that sees anything in this age that we live in. Now, the Bible's not clear specifically what a generation is. Because it says, you know, this generation will not pass away until we see these things. So the Bible's not real clear what a generation is. In Numbers chapter 32, it gives us an indication that a generation is 40 years when the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord coming out of of, of Egypt in the Exodus, and they basically said, God can't do it. The people are too big. There's giants in the land. And the Lord said, you know what? I will do it, but none of you are going to see it. It'll be your children. And this entire generation will pass off, and the next generation will go in. Well, in that case, a generation is 40 years, 38 years, it says in one verse, 40 in another. So a generation could be 40 years, we read in Genesis chapter 15, it speaks of four generations, and it tells us that those four generations are 400 years. So a generation could be 100 years, or perhaps there's sort of a window in between 40 and 100 years. But even if it is 100 years, and this was Jesus' intention when he says this generation will not pass, that sees the rebirth of the nation of Israel, now you're only talking 2048. Now, I know if you're young, 2048 sounds like it's forever away. But I remember when I was a little kid, I was 10 or 11 years old, and I said to my mom, I said, Mom, do you think I'll be alive in the year 2000? Because it felt like it was a gazillion years away. And she said, I certainly hope so, or whatever. But it felt like it was forever away. 2048, 31 years, 30, what what year is this, 2016? (laughs) Almost in 2017, 31 years away from here. So perhaps... That's what it's speaking of. Now, I will tell you this, just to sort of be kind of a full disclosure with you. There's an alternative understanding of verse 34. So again, verse 34 says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, that word generation comes from a Greek word generation. Uh, which is G-E-N-E-A, genia. You can see in there genealogy or genes and things like that. And so there are some versions which translates that word as race. And so let me throw that in there to show you what it would look like. Truly, I say to you, this race will not pass away until all these things take place. And the race that it would be speaking of is the race of the Jewish people that the Jewish people, though they're going to be dispersed around the world, though uh, again and again in the history of the world, people are going to turn their attention against the people of Israel or the Jewish people, for whatever reason, anti-Semitism is what it is, and it just seems to rise up again and again in the history of the people of the world, the promise is that that race of people will never pass away, despite the fact that everyone turns their anger on it. And so here in this situation of Matthew 24, you have the Antichrist, all out onslaught against the Jewish people. Despite that all out onslaught of the Antichrist, that generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Jesus throws it out there. So maybe, you know what, maybe both of those understandings are true. Thank you. Jesus adds, Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away now we don't fully understand every single thing jesus is saying there's possible alternative understandings of this and that but in the end when it's all over we'll look back it will all make sense every one of these words that the lord gives us you can take to the bank every one of them is true and every one of them is certainly sure so we look at the things we do know jesus christ is coming back we know that there's no doubt about what he said now he could be wrong But he's been pretty right every other time I've uh, communicated with him, and I'm sure you have as well. He's not wrong. These things are true. All right, now in verse 36, Jesus, it seems he anticipates a question. It seems he anticipates someone saying, well, when will these things be, Lord? I want to put it on my calendar. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, he says, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I think this is a very good Bible verse for all of those that have set various dates throughout the years for when the world would come to an end. You know, it's, it's remarkable how repeatedly people will set dates. People will sell their homes. They'll go up on a mountain or something. They'll get all ready. They'll put on their white robes. So they're ready for when he's going to return and the date will come and it will pass by and everyone, it'll be on the news and they'll laugh at the people. Oh my gosh. And then they'll call you crazy Christians because other people that say they're believers or whatever are waiting for the end of the world. And then when you say you believe that the world is coming to an end and the Lord returns, you look like a fool. And the news loves to put it on there. And then it kind of dies away. And then somebody else comes along and says, the Lord showed me the date. We were talking, I don't know if Mark's here, fuller but we were talking on Wednesday evenings. There's a particular guy now that is on the internet, and that's the problem, the internet, uh, but he's on the internet, and he's got all kinds of followers, like 100,000 followers or whatever, that are getting ready for the end of the world, and he knows the window of time, and it's going to be, you know, between these months with the, the moons or something or another, uh, and so on, and then those dates passed, and people were like, you're wrong again, he said, oh, no, you know what, I messed up, my calculator was, the battery kind of thing. And so then he threw out another date and he threw out another date. And since this last summer, he's put three dates out there of when the world would come to an end. And this verse here, it says this. So if anybody ever says to you, we know the Lord is coming back and it's on this day. So don't buy those tickets to that event because you won't be here or whatever. Just quote him the verse concerning that day and hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven. No, not even the son, but only the father. No man knows the day or the hour. Jesus even adds in his incarnation, when he came to the earth, he didn't even know the day or the hour. Now, I believe he knows the day or the hour now, as he's in his glorified state, he's quite aware of the day or the hour, but at that particular time, even he didn't. And so, it says in verse 37, in fact, despite all those signs that something is stirring, Jesus now, he points out that those days will be like the days of Noah. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, what were the days of Noah like? Well, we read about the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 through about Genesis chapter 9, chapter 10, and the events leading up to the great flood on the earth. And we know that those days certainly speak of wickedness that abounded on the earth in the days of Noah. There's some other things there people look to, like some spiritual deception, perhaps, and, and different things like that. But certainly they were days of wickedness. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, now notice, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, it says. Every intention of every man on the earth was only evil Continually notice what it also says in verse 6 it says that the lord was sorry that he made man on the earth that he grieved his heart that man had descended to this depth of wickedness now certainly those two ideas the wickedness of man being great and every intention of man's heart being evil kind of describes the world we live in would you agree i don't know if every intention But a whole lot of the intention of a whole lot of people is evil continually. So certainly that describes our day. But I'm not sure that's Jesus' point here when he says, as it was in the days of Noah. I don't think he's just pointing out that it's going to be a really wicked, evil time. And the reason why I don't think so, if you look at verse 38 and verse 39, he says something else about the days of Noah And he says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. I think Jesus's point by referencing the days of Noah is to draw attention to that phrase and they were unaware. Now, Noah (coughs) is called in the New Testament, He's referred to as being uh, a man of righteousness, essentially. That he was a herald of the news of God, that judgment was coming. Noah built his boat for 100 years. And he built his boat. People, what are you doing, man? You're building this boat out in the middle of all this land. 100 years he built his boat. And he would live to 900 and some years, so just a little portion of his life. But he's building this boat all that time. People no doubt are coming to him. What are you doing? And he would tell them. The judgment is coming on the earth and it's going to come in the form of rain falling and the flood forming and people are going to die and those in this boat are going to be safe. And people's response were like, ah, oh, that Noah guy, he's a fool. Remember it had never rained on the earth until that time. And so this guy talking about a judgment coming in that particular way seemed ridiculous to them. And then I think there's also, Noah, you've been saying that for a hundred years. I'm saying that for a hundred years, a judgment is going to come. I was a little baby, And when I heard my dad come home one day and you said that, and I've been now, I'm a hundred years old. I got my own kids and still the world hasn't come to an end. And they're going to go about their lives. It says they did. They went about their lives. They were eating and drinking. Now we think of drinking, like they're down at the, the pub or something like that. Just normal, get up every day, eat your dinner, have a cup of milk or something. And you go through your day. They're eating and drinking. They're marrying, they're giving in marriage. They're not evil things. They're normal things that we go about and we do in the course of our lifetimes. And his point is, in the last days, before Christ returns, people are going to go about the normal order of their lives. Unaware when he returns. Completely unaware when judgment comes upon them. Like Noah, despite the fact that people are saying, look, look at the signs around you. Judgment is coming. There'll be no response, Jesus says in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, he says, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now there's a difference of opinion as to whether these verses are positive. Do you want to be one of those people taken? Or if they're negative, oh, you don't want to be one of those people. There's different opinions as to these. So let me kind of throw it out there. One is that the people that are taken are taken away to judgment. That's one view. While those left, they remain preserved and they're good to go. The other is that it's a blessing to be taken. And the ones that remain are the ones that will be judged. I think it's the latter based on Jesus' choice of the word taken. It says again in verse 40, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Now that word taken there, it's a Greek word, and it means to take to oneself to take and make close to you. So there's three examples that I want to draw your attention to. The word appears about 20 times in the New Testament. Three of the examples that I want to draw your attention to show what I'm referring to. So Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, the Christmas story. Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 is told to take Mary as his wife. Not taking her as his wife to judge her. He's taking her as his wife to be next to her. It's positive. It's positive. The next chapter, he's told to take Jesus and Mary and to go down to Egypt. That's when Herod has set his sights on destroying all of the boys uh, in Bethlehem, the two years and younger. And so he's told to take Jesus and Mary down to Egypt to avoid the murdering, uh, murderous intent of Herod the Great. Also, we see Jesus using the phrase when he is speaking to his disciples. This is John chapter 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So each time that we're seeing it, there are positive examples of the use of the word. That's the Greek word that is used in this particular instance. And so it seems to me that's an argument, though again, not everybody would agree, but that's an argument to imply that Jesus is speaking of something positive when he says that he will come and he will take something to be with him and those that remain will be judged. And I would suggest to you that we're referring to the rapture of the church, not necessarily in the order of the events that we're looking at here, but that he's referring of the rapture of the church as a part of this whole scenario that we've been looking at over the last three weeks. Either way, his point is clear. People are to stay awake and people are to be ready for, as it says in verse 42, no one knows on what day, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You do not know. And so you need to stay awake, and you need to be ready. You know how easy it is for us to fall asleep. I went to see the movie Rogue One yesterday. How easy it is to fall asleep. My kids loved it. I didn't make it through, but I had a good nap. Yeah, I know. 11 bucks to take a nap somewhere. Anyhow, how easy it is to fall asleep. Because you're just sort of lulled to sleep by life. Look at verse 43. He says, know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night, night, excuse me, the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, of course, if the thief told us, I'm coming to your house, 2 2 a.m. in the morning, coming to your house. I'd set my alarm for 155. And I'd get my boys up, and everybody, Jake would get a little dart gun or whatever, and I'd have my bat, and we'd be ready for when he comes. But no thief tells you exactly when they're coming. And no one knows what the hour the thief will break in is actually going to be. In the very same way, no one knows at what hour the Lord will return. And so we have to be ever vigilant that this could be the day, that this could be today. Did anyone wake up today? thinking actively thinking this could be the day that the lord returns probably not because we're sort of lulled to sleep you know we we make our plans football game eagles will lose another one right around four o'clock or so it'll be announced to the world and we just sort of expect to go through our day back in bed at night up the next day to do it all over again but this could be the day that jesus christ returns if i tell you this is the day we got a problem. But to say that, oh my, I got some heavy amens over there. But if I say this could be the day. So let me ask you, if this was the day, would you live this day any differently? If this were the day that Jesus Christ were coming back for his church, would you live this day any differently? I venture to guess you would. Now for some of us, that's a very scary thought. For others of us, That's a thought that causes our hearts to leap. I hope it is the day. It says at the end of the book of Revelation, John is just told, you know, these things are going to come to pass. The Lord will return. And he says, amen, come Lord Jesus. He's excited about it and he is looking forward. But again, if somehow you could know that Jesus was returning to take his church with him to heaven today, would you live your life differently? Would you clean up a few things in your life in anticipation of his return? Would you be a little more diligent in sharing your faith with other people if you knew that his return could be this particular day? Would you be more uh, purposeful about being in right relationship with him and with other people if you knew that this could be the day? My friends, this day will come like a thief in the night. And though we can interpret the signs that are there that seem to indicate that we're getting closer and closer, no one can know exactly when the Lord is going to come, when that day or when that hour will be. And so what is then the response to all this stuff we've learned for the last three weeks? The response should be that Jesus says your response should be is to be ever expectant of his return. And so he makes one more picture here. He tells us, look at verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and he will put them with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. He, he uses a picture of two contrasting servants to make his point. Both set to a task by their master, both uncertain to the exact timing of the master's return, but one Jesus calls a faithful and wise servant that was doing what he was supposed to be doing in the way that he was supposed to be doing it. And Jesus says of that servant in verse 46, I believe it is, blessed is that servant. And then the other one is a wicked servant who has convinced himself because the Lord didn't come back yesterday that he most assuredly wasn't going to come back this day. And because he has convinced himself the Lord's return is not imminent, it could happen at any moment, he begins to shirk his responsibility, he begins to mistreat those around him and he gets involved in all sorts of things that he shouldn't be getting involved with. And Jesus calls that one a wicked servant. And then he further contrasts the wicked servant from the blessed servant by saying that the wicked servant will be cut in pieces. It's a term which probably, not cut up in pieces, it probably refers to being whipped and thrashed and cut in half, so to speak, with the whip. Ultimately, it refers to being cast into hell. Notice what it says there. We've seen this language before. And we'll cut them in pieces and put them with the hypocrites in that place that will be weeping And gnashing of teeth. And so, my friends, this is what we know. We know that this world, as we know it, will one day come to an end. We know that there are going to be various signs that will signal that the end is drawing near. I think specifically the sign of the nation of Israel being rebirthed after 2,000 years. And we know that at some point in time, the Lord Jesus is going to come for his church at an hour that we least expect. And so knowing all that, I think this is a very fair question that we should all ask ourselves. Knowing all of that, how then shall we respond? We should respond by being ready. And so again, if the thought of the imminent return of Christ, if that excites you, that's probably a pretty good indicator you're doing what you need to be doing and you're on the right track. And so keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep seeking the Lord to conform you into his image. But if, on the other hand, if the thought of the Lord's unexpected return frightens you or it causes you to say to yourself, no, Lord, not today, well, that's likely an indicator that you're not where you need to be in your relationship with him, that there are some areas of your life where there's compromise, there's some areas of your life that you have not submitted to the Lord's lordship, or perhaps even that you're a believer and you're a nice person and you're not bothering anyone, but you are so enamored with this world and all that it has to offer that you've allowed your priorities to become askew. And you've taken your eyes off of heaven and you've put them on the things here on the earth. Or it could simply mean this, that you're not a child of God. And if I can say respectfully, I don't wanna be a jerk. Yeah, because I have the mic or whatever, I don't wanna be a jerk. But if I could say respectfully, if you're not a child of God, you should be afraid of the return of Jesus Christ because he is going to come and he's going to judge all of those that are not his children. But here's the good news. The Lord in his mercy has provided a way to take away our sin. And so if you are fearful because you know you're not his child, again, I say to you, the Lord in his mercy has provided a way to take away your sin and that way is Jesus himself. That he would go to a cross on our behalf, take judgment upon himself to set you free from all condemnation. And so I say with the authority of the word of God, it says in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, the women's study on Friday has just finished studying this. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you do not yet know the Lord in that way, my friends, come. See me as we close out. I think it's up there. You'll see the word. See me as we close out because I want to introduce you to Christ. If there's a fear that judgment is coming on your life, you don't need to fear it. And you could look anxiously like John did and said, even so, come today, Lord Jesus. Amen, my friends. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We know these things are true. And Lord, here's what I'm grateful for right now, that there may be some here that are thinking, oh boy, if he comes today, I'm in so much trouble. I don't know him. I've been hearing these things about him. I've been putting it off for however long I've been putting it off. And Father, what delights my heart, what causes me to rejoice is that all could change in a moment, that a person can get right with you in an instant acknowledging their sin, acknowledging that sin brings judgment, but, Lord, that you have taken judgment upon yourself so that we would not have to be judged. And so, Father, we ask for those amongst us that may be wrestling with some of these things right now, that you reveal yourself to them, open up their heart to believe. Father, I pray for those of us that we're confident we're in you. We've come to the place of the cross, but maybe over... Uh, time our eyes have drifted down from heaven to the things of the earth and we've settled in pretty nicely and things have gotten pretty comfortable and there's a part of us that are saying lord i don't want you to come i like it here and lord we know that this world that we live in even the, the nice things that it has to offer are only a shadow of the things of heaven and so lord we pray for us those of us that are in that situation lord that you would do a stirring with our hearts within our hearts so that our hearts' one desire is to be with you, unhindered in fellowship. Lord, for some of us that have gotten involved in some things against the leading of your spirit, bring a heavy conviction. Make us miserable in our sin, Lord, so that we'll repent of them, turn from them, and run back to your open arms as the prodigal did. And, Lord, for those of us here that just cannot wait for your return and our hearts leap at the thought that this could be the day, Lord, we pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself in an even greater way. Lord, our heart seems full with the knowledge of who you are, but, Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts that we might be able to know you in an even greater way and just be filled with the knowledge of your glory in our hearts, Lord. Lord, these words are sure and true, and we pray for those that don't know you outside of this room. Lord, use us in their lives to lead them to the Savior. We pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.